0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called, When Seeing Isn't Believing. It's based upon the lectionary readings for February 15th, 2015. If only God would reveal himself. If only he would part the veil, uncover his glory, and show up in person. If he'd just do that, well then. Well then what? What? If you're anything like me, you've asked God for no-holds-barred revelation at some point in your life, and the yearning that has prompted you to ask is a yearning for certainty, a deep desire to move out of confusion and ambivalence into a safe and absolute knowing. Be careful what you ask for, is what this week's Old Testament reading might say in response. A whirlwind, fiery chariots, flying horses, magic cloaks, let's face it, the story of Elijah's translation in Second Kings is all about God's unveiled glory. If anything, the story is so glorious, it strains modern credulity. You can imagine the movie script, can't you? The wizened prophet Elijah, in his garment of hair and his leather belt, parting the Jordan River with a flick of his cloak. His bereft student Elisha standing on the shore, pleading for a double portion of his master's spirit. Elijah promising nothing, only encouraging Elisha to keep his eyes wide open, his face turned skyward. Elijah ascending to heaven in a whirlwind, accompanied by chariots of fire. To say the obvious right from the get-go, I don't know what to make of the miraculous elements in the story. The interpretation I grew up with—God doesn't hold back when it comes to honoring His faithful servants and providing for their successors—is lovely and no doubt true. But it's rather tame, given the pyrotechnics that run through this narrative. After all, we're talking weather-gone-wacky, horses-on-fire— Human beings on the knife edge of language, cognition, and maybe even sanity. Truisms and theological treatises aside, is there any way we can enter into this story? Make it ours? The only way I can think of is to focus my attention not on the miraculous, but on the ordinary. In this case, on the ordinary human who stands at the sidelines of the story, witnessing the unveiling of God. What does Elisha discover as he listens, beholds, and wonders in the presence of pure miracles? Does he discover the certainty I long for so often? Second Kings tells us that Elijah calls Elisha as his heir and acolyte when Elisha is still a young man, dutifully plowing his father's fields. Directed by God, Elijah walks out amongst the muddy fields and smelly oxen, wraps his cloak around Elisha's shoulders, a gesture so heavy with love and prophetic foreboding it makes my eyes fill, and calls him away to a new vocation. Fast forward seven or eight years. Elisha has more or less become Elijah's shadow, following his teacher around out of love, admiration, and a keen eagerness to learn anything Elijah will teach him. As the time for their parting draws near, both Elijah and the established community of prophets try to help Elisha say goodbye. I need to take the next step of this journey alone, Elijah tells his acolyte three separate times. No, I will not leave you, Elisha stubbornly insists, clinging all the harder. Do you know the Lord is about to take your master? The other prophets ask Elisha, hoping he'll accept the inevitable before it's too late. Shut up, is Elisha's gracious reply. I'm not sure how to apply divine whirlwinds to my life, but they resonate with the human drama at the heart of this story. Like Elisha, I have had and continue to have gifted and loving mentors in my life. Mentors who've watched over my growing up from girlhood to womanhood, mentors who've guided my spiritual life, Mentors who've encouraged and honed my writing. I wouldn't be alive and functional today if it weren't for them. But also, like Elisha, I've never let a mentor go without a fight. I've always hung on first in grief, uncertainty, and fear. Fear that I'm not ready. Fear that I'll fail. Fear that saying goodbye will hurt far too much to bear. For Elisha, this moment at the River Jordan is far more than a sad parting between friends. He's at a vocational crossroads, and both his future and his identity are at stake. Can he trust his calling in the absence of Elijah's reassuring presence? Can he learn to decipher the voice of God on his own, without an experienced translator at his side? Can he, a loyal and eager follower, become a leader instead? Can he bid farewell to a sheltered adolescence and face the hardships of spiritual adulthood alone? These are questions I wrestle with, too, as I stand at the shore with Elisha and watch Elijah's departure with a full heart. Looking back across the centuries that separate me from the story, I have to wonder, what did the drama accomplish? The fire, the wind, the chariots? Were the fireworks for Elijah Had it any way to heaven and all of its cosmos-altering wonders? Or was Elisha the one who needed to understand, right from the beginning of his career, that God's glorious unveilings aren't be-alls and cure Elisha saw glory, that's for sure. Absolute proof, absolute radiance. But his response was neither certitude nor joy. He tore his clothes and grieved. I know few scenes in the Bible more poignant than the one that ends this story. As quickly as a vision came, it departed again. There was no afterglow, no surge of prophetic authority or knowledge as Elisha lay grieving in the dust. Only silence. Only loss. Only an old, tattered cloak waiting to be noticed. I imagine that when Elisha finally saw that piece of cloth, he held it to his face and inhaled deeply. I imagine he stood at the shore for a long time, gripping that last remnant of his teacher's presence in his hands, and wondering what to do, where to go, who to become. "'Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah?' he cried aloud in desolation. No one answered. The heavens were closed. I imagine the future looked more precarious than ever. This isn't a happy story, as stories go, but it convinces me once again that the Bible contains truth, no matter what my modern skepticism makes of its miracles. Why? because it rings true. It shows me true things, things that save me, even when I prefer to see something prettier, easier, and more radiant. It's not the vision that saved saved Elisha. The vision was glorious, and no doubt, as the years passed and his grief faded, he remembered it as one of the truly great events of his life. But it didn't save him, and it didn't propel him forward. Elisha's salvation came in the long silence after the glory, It came when he still had no idea whether Elijah's double portion rested on him or not. It came when he picked up the cloak, approached the river, and did his grief-stricken best to follow in his beloved master's footsteps. Imagine battered faith, trembling faith, scorched faith, the faith that remains after the chariots leave. Elisha knelt and extended his hands. At the first touch of the cloak to the river, the waters parted. For books this week, we've posted a review of A Farewell to Mars, an evangelical pastor's journey toward the biblical gospel of peace, by Brian Zond. This book and its conservative publisher are a good example of why it's so misleading to make dismissive generalizations about evangelicalism, which for a long time has been a more complex and interesting movement than its its detractors have acknowledged. Brian Zond founded the Word of Life Church in 1981. Today, it has a 2,500-seat sanctuary that sits in the middle of a cornfield 30 minutes north of Kansas City. Whereas those demographics sound like a perfect stereotype, Zond is anything but. Zond's book, his fourth, describes how he repented from his worst sin ever. No, he didn't embezzle money or sleep with the secretary. In his view, it was far worse than that. It took 15 years, but in 2006, he had an epiphany of how back in 1991, he was a cheerleader for America's first Iraqi war, Operation Desert Storm. He describes how he and friends ordered pizza and watched the war on television, and how he prayed war prayers and preached war sermons to his congregation, and how they loved it. How I reached the point where I could weep over war and repent of any fascination with it is part of what this book is about. It's the story of how I left the paradigms of nationalism, militarism, and violence as a legitimate means of shaping the world to embrace the radical alternative of the gospel of peace. Zahn is a thoughtful pastor, a good writer, and well-read. His journey has been informed by Bulgakov, Kierkegaard, Chesterton, Dostoevsky, Merton, Girard, and Mark Twain. He now repudiates a privatized piety that is merely spiritual and only for a future in heaven. He is no longer a chaplain to the state who offers innocuous invocations for a Constantinian Christianity. Having bid farewell to the Roman god of war, Mars, the last chapter of this book is one short sentence. There is no them. There is only us. For movies this week, we've reviewed A Story of Music and Memory. Alive Inside, A Story of Music and Memory. This 77 minute documentary tells the inspiring story of a social worker named Dan Cohen, who several years ago volunteered in a nursing home in order to connect elderly residents with dementia with the music of their youth. The results were remarkable. With the help of an iPod and a personalized playlist, He'd place earphones on people, play a tune from their youth, and it was like someone threw a switch. The movie tells the stories of a dozen or so patients, with running commentary by professionals, like the neurologist Oliver Sacks. It's anecdotal and not narrowly scientific, but something in the music fired the minds and memories of these people. A snippet of one of Cohen's patients, 94-year-old Henry, went viral on the Internet, with 7 million views. And in 2014, this film won the Audience Award at Sundance. Today, Cohen's foundation, Music and Memory, has brought the gift of new life through music to over 650 nursery homes. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. And finally, for poems this week, we include Wendell Berry's The Real Work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work, and that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey, The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 15, 2015. I'm Debbie Thomas.